Good morning, Redeemer Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric, and as Pastor Dave said, I do have the privilege of directing GTC, Redeemer's Golf Training Center, and I do want to ask your prayers for GTC as we embark on our new academic year starting just two days from now on Sunday. Some of you have heard about the intensive classes coming up next week. We got a lot going on at GTC this year. Three years ago, we started with 15 students in the pastoral training program. This year, we'll have more than 80 students, probably, I think 90 students actually, across different programs, our biblical counseling program, Bible and theology program. So we have training for all different kinds of ministry. And so just pray for us that the Lord would use that training, that it would be fruitful, and we'd love to have you come to one of the classes that's available to you. I do also want to just mention a couple of guys that are here today. You know, as the ministry of GTC has grown, it's sort of outgrown me and, you know, me teaching all of the classes. So the Lord has brought reinforcements. And so we have here Dr. Paul, Can- Paul Smith and Mike Canham, who are over here somewhere. You guys want to wave? So Dr. Smith and Dr. Canham are going to be with us for four months from now until December, teaching a number of classes for GTC. They're both experienced seminary professors. And so we're so glad to have them adding to that ministry. Please meet them and get to know them during their time that they are here. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open his word this morning. Father God, thank you so much for Redeemer Church. Thank you that we can come before you and worship and sing to you. And thank you for the worship that can continue now as we open your word. What a privilege it is to have your word written, to know how you have worked in history. May we see you at work in this story and see how you are at work in our present day. Uh, May we behold our God in this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if any of you are the movie-going type, but it turns out that the, I think now, the most viewed movie of all time is called Avengers Endgame. Anyone seen that? Avengers Endgame. You don't want to raise your hand. It's okay. You know, there's a little shame there. Uh, But there's this moment in the movie, and it's kind of the climax of the movie, where the villain Thanos, he's the big bad guy in his army. They're on the verge of victory. He's gathered all the, the stones that bring him all this infinite power, and he's about to snap his fingers and end the whole thing, win his final victory. And so he looks out over his enemies, and he says, I am inevitable. I am inevitable. He's saying, my victory is assured. It's as good as over. You may as well quit now because I'm inevitable. I am going to win. And see, if you are following Christ in 2019, you're going to face opponents who think that they are invisible. Invincible, not invisible. Let's start over. Let's start over. Let's just pretend like that. none of that just happened. What I'm trying to say is if you're following Christ now, in the day in which we live, people around us, opponents to our faith, will believe that they are inevitable. Just like Thanos thought he was inevitable. We've got other religions who think that their God is best, that their culture is best, that our Bible is just some silly joke, they're inevitable. We've got the secular culture that looks at Christianity and says, that's just superstition. You're just holding on to all these old fables. You're holding up progress. Don't be on the wrong side of history. They think they're inevitable. I don't think it's getting any easier anytime soon. It seems like by 2030, 2050, as the the years go, go by, that the consequences of holding fast to truth are gonna increase as the cries of the mockers get louder. So that's our question this morning is, what do we do then? How do we keep trusting God then? How do we keep trusting God when the mocker seems inevitable? Go ahead and turn to Isaiah 36. It's an incredible story, uh, the equal or I dare say surpassing any of those that come from Marvel. So let's see the story here in Isaiah 36. Uh, Mockers of today, you know, they act like they have all of these brilliant new ideas, but really there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same garbage that's been out there for 3,000 years. This morning we want to dig into Isaiah 36 and 37, and it's kind of this long text. We can't read it all. I hope you'll read it by yourself later. But let's kind of break it up under two headings, okay? Two headings for our message. First of all, the mocker's challenge. We'll see that in the first part. And then second of all, we'll see the martyr's courage. First of all, the mocker's challenge. Our mocker in this story is the Assyrian king Sennacherib. 
Sennacherib, it's kind of a cool name, and he was kind of a, a Thanos of his day and his youth. Sennacherib helped his father overthrow the current king of Assyria. They took over the most powerful empire in the world of their day, and now the father's passed on. Sennacherib is king in his own right. He's the ruler, but he's got some problems. It's early on in his reign, and all these outlying countries that were under the sway of the Assyrian Empire said, hey, we got a new king. I think now is the time to stop paying all these taxes, to stop paying this tribute. And Sennacherib has got to set out and say, let's get rid of this rebellion. He wants to go out and show all these countries that he is inevitable. So look at 36.1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So here's Assyria. It's up in the north, kind of modern day Iraq, Iran, up in there. He's coming down from there, coming down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And there's these different cities that are fortified that stand in his way. And he's taking them. He's taking them out one by one with this huge, massive army of hundreds of thousands of people. And he comes to this city called Lachish. Lachish is the second most important city in Judah. It's a big city, a fortified city. And Sennacherib surrounds it. He lays siege to Lachish. History tells us he was there for two years besieging this great city of Lachish and eventually he takes it. He destroys it and now there's nothing left in between Sennacherib and Jerusalem. He's got the much bigger army. He's got much more power. His victory over Jerusalem is inevitable, but he's already been gone from home for a while. He doesn't really want to do another long siege like at Lachish and so he says, let's go for the surrender. Let's see if we can just win this one without a fight. So verse 2, the king of Assyria sent the Rob Shekay. That's not this guy's name. Rob Shekay is a title. It's like uh, his number two, his most trusted advisor, Sennacherib's chief of staff. So he sent the Rob Shekay from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And so here's uh, our opponent. In the opposite corner from Sennacherib, we've got King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is the king of Judah. He's descended from a long line of bad kings, idolatrous kings, unfaithful kings, but, but he's one of the good ones. He's faithful. He's, he's ruling well. He's trusting in the Lord, and he knows Sennacherib is coming. So he, you know, he's trying to forestall it any way he can. He tried to bribe Sennacherib. He tried to pay him off with a huge ransom. If we give you all this money, will you not come and defeat us? But that doesn't work. Sennacherib is still coming. Sennacherib wants blood. And so Hezekiah gets ready for war. He gets all the people ready. He arms them up. He digs his famous water tunnel to get water into the city of Jerusalem. You can still walk through it today. And he calls the people to trust. Second Chronicles 32, the same, same story. It says, Hezekiah gathered the people and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, 32.7, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So back to Isaiah 36, verse 2. So, so there's Rob Shekay, the chief of staff, he's come. And it says, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So this is just the defenses of this, of this walled city. He's right there, and Hezekiah sends out his own messengers, his own delegation to meet these messengers from the king of Assyria. Verse 4, the Rav Shekeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king. So you see the disrespect here? So here we've got just, he won't even call Hezekiah king. You just Hezekiah versus the great king, the king of Assyria. But here's what he says. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? The Rob Shekay's mission is to get the people of God to surrender. And so his method is to undermine their trust in God. And see, that's the mission of every mocker. Nothing has changed from then until now. Nothing, in fact, nothing has changed since the garden that every mocker that comes along, his goal is to get the attention of the people of God and to turn their focus away from God, turn their focus away from trusting in the Lord. He wants you to trust your eyes. He wants you to trust the world. He wants you to trust in earthly power. He wants to make you believe that trusting the God of Scripture is a losing cause. And so in this passage... The mocker's challenge takes the form of a long speech. 
He, he kind of goes on and on, as you can see there in Isaiah 36, and let's break it into four arguments, four main points this mocker is trying to make. First of all, challenge number one, we could say, and that's that God's way is too simple. God's way is too simple. We already saw Hezekiah saying, trust the Lord. Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, he's been telling them, trust the Lord, Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. See, that's the heart of trust. 28.4 of Isaiah. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. See, these are the people of God. That's the heart they should have. But then here comes this mocker in 36.4. And he says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust now that you've rebelled against me? He's saying trust doesn't win battles. Trust doesn't save you. Trust is just words. He doubles down in verse 14. He's, now he's not just talking to the messengers. He's talking to all the people of Judah. Verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. 15, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. And just here's like, side, aside, free tip. Whoever the mocker tells you not to listen to is probably someone you should listen to. Just, that's for free. That's a free tip. But he says, he's saying Hezekiah just has words. That's all he's got. All Hezekiah's got is words. He's just throwing Bible verses at you. He's just giving you little sentimental thoughts. Maybe that can help with little problems. But these are big problems. These are real problems. Don't you know God's way is too simple? Don't you know trust isn't going to get you out of this? And y'all, is he right? Is he right? Because is it, is it the case that, that we as followers of God, we who are coming here on Friday morning and living in light of a resurrected Christ, are we missing something? Are we missing what life is really about? Is the real secret to life, is it gathering enough degrees and gathering enough jobs and enough positions and enough money and enough respect and enough power so that you can see yourself through any obstacle? Is that the goal of life? Is it the case that the promises of God are strategies and power for war or are they just words? Are they just words? And so here's these people, they're hearing this mocker speak. And so there's this city of Jerusalem, there's a walled city. The people from the surrounding countryside have come into the city to be safe from the army. And so the city is very crowded. People are up on the wall watching this happening. And so you can just imagine the people that are looking out and they see this conversation taking place. And beyond the conversation, they see a huge army as far as the eye can see, do you think that at that moment they thought that maybe God's way really is too simple? It's a nagging thought when you come to the end of your resources. And right as you start thinking that, the second challenge comes. He said God's way is too simple, but then look what it says in verse 6. Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So this time we've got Assyria's the empire in the north, Egypt is the empire in the south, and Judah's here in the middle. Okay, so two more powerful empires, Judah in the middle. And at some point a few years before this, somebody had the bright idea, look, Assyria's seeming like a pretty big threat, so let's make a deal with Egypt. Let's use the strength and the power and the resources of Egypt. If we tie up with them, then we can oppose Assyria. And Yahweh said that's a bad idea. God said, if you do that, you're not trusting in me. Isaiah 30 talks about this at great length. In Isaiah 30, he says, if you do that, you're stubborn children. You're those who carry out a plan that's not mine. Isaiah 30, he says, you go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. Yahweh says, don't do it. Don't tie up with Egypt. But here we are, years after that prophecy, and what are they doing? They're trusting in Egypt. They're looking to Egypt. They're trying to get help out of Egypt and see this Rob Shakay, he's found a weak point. He's found a weak point. So his second challenge here, his second challenge is that God's people are too sinful. God's people are too sinful. He's saying, see, you don't even follow God consistently. 
right? You disobey him when it's convenient for you. So why are you suddenly so serious about trusting him now? See, you're inconsistent. It's a pretty good argument. Sometimes mockers say things that are true. Sometimes they're used by God to convict us of our inconsistencies, to convict us of our unfaithfulness. And see, in our own day, mockers are going to look at the church and they're going to speak to Christians and they're going to say that Christian churches haven't protected women or children or minorities. Or maybe they'll say that Christian missionaries have caused harm or they'll talk about historical injustice that's been done in the name of the church. And you know what? Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're right, and and so what they'll say is, see, you Christians aren't serious about your beliefs. Why should we be? Y'all, if our actions have given a a reason for others to mock God, we should grieve that. That should bring us to tears. That should bring us even more than that to repentance. Let's, Let's repent of our actions that cause others to mock God, but let's never grant that our moral inconsistency disproves God's truth. The sin of Christians doesn't make the gospel of Christ untrue. In fact, that's why the gospel needs to be true. But he says God's way is too simple. He says God's people are too sinful. But then the third challenge is that God's word is too confusing. God's word is too confusing. Look at verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not... He whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. See, he's, he's trying to do a theological argument. He's trying to argue on the basis of their own religion. And of course, he totally butchers it. He's not a good theologian. No mockers are. But he's kind of bringing in here his own pagan theology and the way they think in Assyria and their religion as all other places in the ancient Near East. They think that, okay, each little country... It has its own little God. Each each God is is tied to a place. And what we're going to do is that we want to manipulate these gods to do stuff for us and to give us stuff. And of course, so we're going to set up their altars. That's why we do altars. That's why we give stuff to them. That's why we offer sacrifices is we want to make the gods do stuff for us. And the more altars we have, the more places where we're offering to these gods, the more stuff they're going to do for us. That's his thinking. That's how he he thinks theologically. And he also knows, he knows that Hezekiah, since he became king, has been going around removing idols. Hezekiah is following the Lord here. He's removing all these pagan shrines. He's trying to get them to trust the Lord alone. But see, this guy's confused by that. He's saying, okay, you're taking away all these altars, so your God must be very offended. He must not like you. He's probably not going to help you because you've been taking away all his idols. See, mockers are terrible theologians. It's a theology of ignorance, a theology that that doesn't reflect anything that a true follower of God believes. But what's dangerous here is the argument that's under the argument. Because what he's really saying is, God's word is too confusing. It's too confusing because you're saying that God calls you to trust. I'm calling upon you not to trust. And I can say some stuff about God too. Right? So in other words, you've got some verses, and I've got some verses, and we can both talk about verses, and so pretty much it's a tie. God's word is too confusing. And see, because the mocker can't point out with sound exegesis and sound interpretation, he can't show clearly that Scripture really does support his views— That's not his goal. His goal is not to engage in rational biblical reasoning, but rather to cause enough confusion around the issue, to cause enough, you know, make enough weird statements that we just kind of put the word of God on the sideline and say it's too confusing. We can't really understand what it has to say. What did the serpent say in Genesis? He said, has God really said? God's word's too confusing. It's the oldest trick in the book. And see, there's always an audience for this argument. Because people love their idols. They like worshiping their idols. They're always looking for an excuse to go along with what the culture is celebrating. And here's the excuse. The excuse is that God's word is too confusing. So he said that God's way is too simple. That God's people are too, confused, God's people are too sinful. And now he's ready to make his last argument. And that's that God's power is too small. God's power is too small. Look at verse 18. 36, 18 says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. 
Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. He's saying, hey, Assyria's conquered a lot of places. And all those places had their own little gods. And you've got your little God and you're no different from that. Why should you be any different? A little bit later, 3711. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? See, because the Assyrians are saying there's nothing unique about this God of Judah. God's power is too small. He can't deliver. He can't save you. And, and, and like many do today, they're just kind of lumping all religious faith into the same bucket. They're just taking all religions, whatever God you want to trust in, it's all, let's all put it in the same category and say, hey, they're all kind of interchangeable. They're all kind of just stuff that people make up, little ways of living that are convenient for them. It's all kind of the same. Second Chronicles 32, 19 says of these guys that they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. See, it's all man-made. It's all the work of men's hands. It's great that all these people have their gods, but it doesn't really help them. Those gods can't do anything for them in the end because what matters is power. What matters is human power, the power you can get here on earth. That's what really matters because the mocker can't imagine that there might be such a thing as a God who's entirely different, a God who is not like these other gods. He can't imagine that there might be a God who stands alone, a God who, is in, who, who has unsurpassed power, a God who could rule over history because he made history in such a way as to allow the judgment of his people when they're in sin, as to bring them back from exile, as to cause them to have a hope and a redemption, a God who rules over history, he can deliver his people, he can judge his people. They can't imagine that there could be a God who could defeat an invincible army. It's inconceivable because God's power is too small. There's no one God, there's no unique God, there's no powerful God, it's just all these little idols. That's the mocker's challenge. The mocker's challenge has an impact. Look at verse 11. They're getting worried about morale in team Hezekiah. Verse 11, behold, uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 11, then uh, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, these are Hezekiah's guys, they said to the Rob Shekeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic for we understand it. He's saying, hey, diplomatic language, the people don't speak this language, but we do, let's talk this way. Let's keep this conversation between us. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But then look at verse 13. The Rav Shekeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He says, no thanks. I'm talking to everybody here. I want everybody to hear this. I'm challenging not just these messengers, but all the people of Judah. And here's the challenge. I want all of you to choose. And the choice is option one, surrender. Surrender, and if you surrender, you can keep living. If you surrender, yeah, maybe you'll go off into some kind of exile, but you can keep living, you can keep farming, you can grow food for your families, you can live on. Option two, on the other hand, you can keep trusting this God of yours, you can keep trusting, but that's gonna mean a long, painful, difficult siege ultimately leading to your defeat and extermination just like those people in Lachish. And in the meantime, all these people, verse 12, are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. It's the jumpstart boy's favorite verse. So what's the king going to do? What's Hezekiah going to do? He's, he, he, he has this choice. He can surrender, get exile, maybe get some kind of pension, or he can, he can stay, he can accept trust, and that means maybe being made an example of. That's going to mean his death. That's going to mean him being hung up on a wall, tortured and martyred as an example to other would-be defi defiers of Sennacherib. What's he going to do? Let's pause the story right there. Put, put a pause there. We'll leave that question open. 
And let's move back. Let's do a flashback. 35 years back, 35 years before in history, Isaiah chapter 7, turn there. We've got a different enemy, but the same situation. We've got this northern kingdom of Israel. They've joined up with another kingdom called Syria. Israel and Syria are together, and together they're opposing Judah. They're opposing Judah. They're coming at them. And there's this question, same question. Invading army is coming. Who is the king going to trust? Who's the king going to trust? So Isaiah 7, 3. Yahweh sends Isaiah, same prophet. He's young at this point. Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. Ahaz is the king at this time. So he says, go out and meet Ahaz, where? At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Have you heard of that place before? Chapter 36. It's the same place where the Rabshakeh is taunting the messengers of God. See, it's the same location. That's not by accident. Same location. And maybe when Isaiah goes out to meet the king, it may be that little four-year-old Hezekiah, the little prince, is looking out the window and he sees his father down there talking to the prophet. And maybe even he overhears the prophet saying to his father, Isaiah 7, 4, do not fear. 7, 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. 7, 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God saying to this prophet, King Ahaz, trust the Lord. The Lord's got this one. He is your God. He can deliver you from this threat. Ahaz, you've got to trust. But Ahaz says no. He says no. He won't trust Yahweh to deliver because Ahaz doesn't get it. Ahaz doesn't know this God. Ahaz doesn't conceive of a God who can deliver. For Ahaz, human power is what matters. Armies are what matter. He, he's going to find his own deliverer and he finds one. You know who Ahaz goes to for deliverance? He goes to Assyria. He goes to Assyria. The reason why Assyria came into Judah in the first place is because the father of Hezekiah invited them in because he wouldn't trust the Lord. That's what Ahaz chooses. And if we were to read all of Isaiah 7 and 8 that talk about this issue, Yahweh responds to Ahaz. And to sum up, he says, okay, Ahaz, you want Assyria instead of me? Then I'll give you Assyria. You can have Assyria. And so now in Isaiah 6, we're seeing the result of that disastrous decision. So unpause. Back to Isaiah 36. A generation later, here's the son of Ahaz in the same place as Ahaz, facing the same decision as Ahaz. And here's the decision, the decision for these kings and the decision that you and I will so often face in all that we face in this world. And the decision is, will I trust God or not? Will I trust God now or will I trust in something else? Because guess what, brothers and sisters, you're going to face the mocker that is going to happen in your life. He's coming for you. The mocker is coming at you. He's peddling his false, little, distorted view of God. He thinks he is inevitable. And he may be harsh and mean and violent, or he might be the, the nicest, kindest, seeming friend in the world, but he's going to tell you, don't trust God. Don't trust God. There's a better way here. Don't trust God. That's what he says. And when that happens, many so-called Christians are going to fold. They're going to be like Ahaz. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Let's read the headlines. It happens. It, it goes on. It's going on now. There's going to be more headlines like that soon. As a Christian, in any age, you can expect that there's going to come a day when it seems like the only two choices available to you are on the one hand, to live and prosper as one who's willing to go along with whatever seems inevitable in your generation or, on the other hand, to trust God and then eat, dung, and die as one who has trust fixed on the living God. So the question, will you join the mockers or join the martyrs? That's what's facing Hezekiah right here. And in that day, when that day comes, you need to understand not only the mocker's challenge, but you need to find the martyr's courage. 
the martyr's courage, because threatened with martyrdom, here's what Hezekiah doesn't do. Here's what he doesn't do, 37.1. He doesn't act like a victim. He doesn't say, oh, woe is me, I can't do anything. Verse, 30, verse 1, as soon as Hezekiah, King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. He's not trying to save face here. He's not trying to, to put the best spin on the situation in front of everyone. He's showing grief. He's showing devastation. He's, he's showing repentance. That's what sackcloth signifies. It's, it, it's a deep contrition. Verse 3, he says, this day is a day of distress, a day of rebuke. See, he says, it's, it's a rebuke. He's a good king. He's a faithful king, but he hasn't been without fault. He says, God is rebuking us for our collective sin, for our collective lack of trust. This is a rebuke. And as the king, he's leading the way in repentance. He doesn't act like a victim. And Hezekiah doesn't presume that God is going to deliver him. God doesn't owe him anything. God doesn't have to save him. Look at verse 4. He sends his messenger to Isaiah. Now, by this time, Isaiah is an old man. And so the message to Isaiah, he says, look at verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God will hear. It may be. He's not saying God has to hear. He's not saying God has to get me out of this thing that my family's gotten ourselves into. He's saying, no, but, but maybe God will. Maybe God will. We know that God can He's not obligating. He's not presuming. But what, what Hezekiah does here, you saw it in the verse we read, he's going to God. When faced with the greatest challenge, Hezekiah is going to God. He's ready to be a martyr, but he's hoping. And unlike his father, he's trusting. He's, he's firm in this trust. And so the initial challenge comes. Hezekiah goes to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. We don't have a lot of information about that prayer. The, the messenger goes away. Rob Shakeh goes back to, to Sennacherib. Sennacherib hears, okay, they're still trusting the Lord. And then he sends another letter. More messengers come. This other letter repeating the same threats. Your God is too small. And what does Hezekiah do? He prays again. He goes to the Lord again. And here's this pattern. He's going to the Lord. He's going to the Lord. Lord, you've got to do something here. That's what his trust is looking like. And look at his prayer. Look at starting in verse 14, 37, 14. I want you to see how he prays. When you see how he looks to the Lord in the midst of this, what he sees about the Lord that causes him to want to pray, that causes him to trust instead of turning away and, and surrendering, here's what he sees. He, he sees, he knows, Hezekiah knows that God is sovereign, that he's omnipotent, that he can do anything, that he rules over everything. Look at the prayer, uh, 37, 14. He prays, actually verse 15, he prays, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So he's appealing to this God who made all things. He's calling him Yahweh Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies, literally. Sennacherib claims to have a great army. He claims to be a victorious king. But we know this God has more power than any king, than any army. The mocker says, I'm inevitable. He's saying, I'm stronger than your God. But Hezekiah knows that this is the God who made the earth. He made heaven. This is his world. He made it. He rules over it. Hezekiah knows that God is outside the world, that nothing in the world can control God. Nothing in the world is greater than God. This God rules the kings. This God rules the armies. This God rules the nations. He can do what he wants. Hezekiah sees that. He knows that. Hezekiah knows further that God is omniscient. That God is imminent. He, look at verse 14, when, even when he begins his prayer, it says, Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. He took this letter from Sennacherib. And it says he spread it before the Lord. He brings it before the Lord physically in this case. He's saying, Lord, look at this. Look what they're saying. He presumes that God cares. See, this, this God who made all things, he's not detached from the world. But he's saying, God, I know you care. I know you're involved. I know you're engaged with your people. I know you care about what happens in the case of your people. Look what they're saying, Lord. Look what they're saying. It's not about me. It's about you. I'm the messenger here. Look at verse 17. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He's saying, God, I know you hear. I know you see. God, you're involved. You're, you're involved in this world. You care for your people. What are you going to do? Are you going to let this go on? 
And see, because Hezekiah knows further, he knows further, he sees all these attributes of God and how they're involved in the situation, and he knows that this God is a savior, a deliverer, and this God wants to be known to the ends of the earth because the Assyrians, on the one hand, they think all these gods are the same, they think all these gods are small, but he says, you are the God, verse 16. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, all those other gods, verse 19, they were no gods. They're just the work of men's hands, wood, and stone. But he's saying, God, you're not like that. You're not another, you're not another statue. You're not another, another piece of wood like these other gods. You're different from that. You're different from that. So look at verse 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. God, make yourself known here. We know you're the God of the whole world. Make yourself known here. He's not just praying that he'd get out of it. He's not just praying for deliverance, but he's saying, God, may you be known. This is your world, Lord. This is your people. This is, we know that you desire to rule, to be known over this entire earth. God, make yourself known here. Make yourself known in my life. Make yourself known in my challenge. Make yourself known in my country and in, in, in my city. Lord, work. Lord, make yourself known. That's how he's praying. His prayer is not driven by what he needs, what he thinks he needs, but it's driven by who God is, who he knows God to be. And friends, if we're sitting out here today and we're thinking that the very purpose of God is to do stuff for us, that the purpose of God is to give us what we want, then we're going to be very tempted by the mocker's challenge. But if we see that God is real and that God is the creator and that he relates to us not to make our lives easier or more pain-free, but to show his glory in us, then we'll see that what's good for us, what's most good for us is not to get what we want from God, but to realign ourselves to God as he has revealed himself. What we need, friends, is not more human power. What we need is God. We need, we need him. We need more of him. We need to know him more. So when the mocker asks, who do you trust? Who do you trust? It's really a theological question. What he's saying, he's saying, he's saying is your God worthy of trust? Really, he's saying, who is God? Who is God? Who is God? See, when that question comes to Hezekiah, he has an answer. He has an answer, and so, Redeemer, do you? Do you, when you're asked, who is God, when that challenge comes to you, what's your answer? Who is God? Do you, do you know him? Do you know his attributes? Do you know not just some general thing like, oh, God is good, but do you know the details of what he's revealed about himself? All the different things that he is, all the different ways that he acts, all the different events in which he has shown his glory in this world. Do you know the God of the Bible? Do you saturate yourself with all that he said about himself? Do you, being rooted and grounded in love, have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the, the length and the height and the breadth and the depth? And do you know the love of Christ? Are you filled with the fullness of God. So you've got to be. You've got to be because whatever challenges you face, just like Hezekiah, whatever else they are, they are challenges to your theology. They're challenging your view of God. A military challenge we see in this text is, first of all, a theological challenge. Your medical challenge or your marriage challenge or your sin challenge is, first of all, what? A theological challenge. And because the mocker's challenge is a theological challenge. The martyr's courage is a theological courage. A theological courage, that's what you need. That's what you need when you're faced with martyrdom or you're faced with any lesser threat. You need a theological courage, not a human courage, not physical strength, not bravado, not self-sufficiency, but you need theological courage. Theological courage is what happens when you're ready for the mocker because instead of wasting the hours and the days and the minutes that God gives to you. You've invested those days and those years in studying the word of God in such a way that you come to know the God of the word. Theological courage is what happens when you are so saturated with a biblical vision of God that the mocker's arguments and the mocker's rewards are revealed for the silly counterfeits that they are. When the mocker says God's word is too confusing, theological courage says you're wrong. You're wrong. The word of God is clear and it's sufficient. 
When the mocker says God's way is too simple, theological courage says, no, no, it is not. I'm going to keep trusting. I don't care what you say. I'm going to keep trusting this God, keep trusting God. Trust is not just words. When the mocker says God's people are too sinful, the theological courage says, yes, we are sinful, myself most of all. But let me tell you what God does for sinful people. And when the mocker says God's power is too small, theological courage says, oh, no, it isn't. Oh, no, it isn't. If only you knew this God, if only you knew his uniqueness, if only you knew his attributes, if only you looked in his word and saw what he's done in history, if only you looked back and saw how he's worked, if only you would look forward and see what he will do. He is not too small. His power is not insufficient. He is the one true and only God. That's theological courage. But friends, theological courage is not something that you manufacture at the very moment of a challenge. It's got to be something that you build over time. Look at 36.1 again. 36.1, this is the 14th year of King Hezekiah. The historical books tell us that he spent these 14 years, these 14 years that he's been on the throne, he's been undoing this idolatry of his fathers. We talked about that. Why did he do that? Why did he conduct this battle with false religion? 2 Chronicles 31.21 tells us, Every work that Hezekiah undertook in the service of the house of God in, in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. In other words, he, he's opening up the word, he's opening up the law and the commandments, the word of God available to him. He's looking at it, he's looking at what it says because he's seeking the Lord and he's following it. He's obeying it. Hezekiah has spent 14 years making a choice against his fathers, against his culture, against all the world surrounding him, a choice to dig into the word of God, to see what the word of God says, to see what God has commanded to seek God and obey God. And guess what? When this man needed theological courage, it was there. It was there. The other day, I was uh, playing with my son, Moses. He's four. We're building Legos, and you know, we got this big pile of miscellaneous Legos. And back in my day, if I may say so, I was you know, pretty good with the Legos. And uh, so I'm trying to show off a little bit. And so I build this big thing and it's like this big wall or kind of a bridge. I don't know. It's this big, long thing. It looked very impressive. And Moses is impressed. He says, oh, that's really cool. I'm gonna, here's my little guy. I'm going to put the guy on the top of this thing that you built. And he puts his guy on the top and the whole thing crumbles. The whole thing crumbles. So I built it in haste. It wasn't built well. It had no structure. It had no solidity to it. And so one guy goes on it and it falls down. But see, if instead, if I had been more careful in that building, if I had looked carefully at it, if I, if I had taken additional bricks and put them in the places where it was weak, pretty soon I could have solidified that wall in such a way that it could have one guy stand on top. And if I kept building and kept putting more bricks, pretty soon that wall could have 10 guys on top or 100 guys on top. And if I, day by day, Week by week, if I kept adding more bricks to that wall, pretty soon it would be so solid that you could hit it or you could punch it or you could kick it or you could do whatever to it and it would stand firm because it's been built solid. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you're called to be martyrs. I hope that you're not. In the end, Hezekiah wasn't. But I know. I know that as strangers and exiles in a land that is not our home, your calling demands the theological courage of the martyrs. And so it calls you then to be one who keeps digging, to be one who keeps reading, to be one who keeps hearing until yours is this big theology, this theological courage that can withstand whatever challenge the mocker may bring. Back in our story, Hezekiah prays, as we've seen, and then Yahweh responds. He responds, look at, look at verse 21, 37, 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. The Lord has a message for Sennacherib. Guess what, mocker? I got some things to say to you. Look at verse 22. 
She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel? Verse 24. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord. Yahweh is saying, I see. I know Hezekiah's theological courage was well-founded because what Hezekiah knew about God was true. That's what God is saying. He's saying, I am omniscient. I am imminent. I have seen every aspect of this situation. I have heard every word that's been spoken. Look at verse 28. He says, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. He's saying, I know. I care. I'm involved. He's saying, yeah, I am sovereign. I am omnipotent. Look at verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. He's saying, I'm doing this. I'm at work. I'm, I'm accomplishing my plan for history. You're just a part of that. Look at verse 29. He says to this pagan king, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. See, here's, here's Sennacherib and he thought he's this great king, the great ruler of the world and God's saying, no, you're just a, a beast of burden. I can do what I want with you. You got a bridle, you got reins, I'm gonna pull you whichever way I want you to go. Great king, more like great jackass. That's what God is saying. He says, I am the savior of my people. Verse 32 out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He, he will save ultimately. In verse 33, he will save immediately because therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. Verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. I'm the deliverer. I'm the savior. You don't believe me? Let's have a demonstration. Let's have a demonstration. We've heard from the messengers of Sennacherib. So how about God sends a messenger of his own? Verse 36. And the angel, the messenger of the Lord, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. The mocker is not inevitable. Sennacherib was not inevitable. Thanos was not inevitable. Secularism is not inevitable. Other religions are not inevitable. And I wish I could say that the result of all of this was that Sennacherib was humbled and repented, but that wouldn't be true. Because we know that Sennacherib went home after this great defeat, after hundreds of thousands of his troops were killed by the Lord. He never made it into Jerusalem. But he went back and he talked about his great accomplishments and he created this huge room the size of this room in his palace where he put murals up depicting his great siege of Lachish. He published an a, uh, inscription that talks about his time in Jerusalem. He says, I locked up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Never mind the fact that that bird got free. That bird was delivered from his cage. Sennacherib was a mocker to the end. He reigned for 20 more years, but then our text skips ahead and says, here's the rest of the story. Verse 38, as Sennacherib was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adrimelech and Sharazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. You see the irony? See, this text is showing us that if, if Yahweh is fighting for you, you might be encircled by the most powerful army in the world and you're safe. Take hope in that. But if Yahweh is against you, you might be the great king in your own capital, in the temple of your God, with only your sons, and you're not safe. Don't be deceived, Sennacherib. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also he will reap. 
I wish I could say that Hezekiah's courage never faltered, but that wouldn't be true either. If we kept reading, we'd come to Isaiah 38. We'd see that in the face of illness, he did have courage, but then we'd come to Isaiah 39 and see that, that his courage faltered. Babylonian messengers came and he was showing off how great he was, all this wealth that he has. That's there to show us the hero of this story is not Hezekiah. The hero of the story is Yahweh, the Savior, the Deliverer. He's the one who saved his city so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that he is the Lord. This Yahweh doesn't always rescue the way we want. After all, just a hundred years later, less than that, the Babylonians came, Jerusalem was defeated, his people were carried off into defeat and into exile. But if we were to keep on reading, we were to keep on reading Isaiah, we got to Isaiah chapter 40, you know what we'd hear Isaiah saying to the exiles, to those who have been defeated, to God's people who have been carried off into exile? You know, you know what he thinks they need in the darkest night of exile? Look at Isaiah 40, verse 9. With this, we'll close. He says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God. And so here from Isaiah 40, for the last 27 chapters of this prophecy, what he does is he shows them God. He shows them what God is like. It's not tips for getting out of exile, but it's a vision of God to behold in exile because what the exiles of Judah needed most was to behold their God. What Hezekiah needed most when the army of Sennacherib was there, he needed to behold his God. And Redeemer Church, as we sit here in Dubai in 2019, and even in this immediate situation where it seems like there's laws and there's government and there's hotels and all this stuff kind of is rigged against us, where it seems like where can we even meet as a church? You know what we need in that situation? We need to behold our God. We need to behold our God. And brothers and sisters, in your life, when the pain comes, when the mocker mocks, I know you'll be ready. I know you'll be ready because here on Friday mornings and tomorrow morning at your table and in your friendships and in your discipleship and in your small groups and your classes, you're going to open up your Bible and you're going to behold your God. And in knowing him, you will find inexhaustible courage. Let's pray. Lord, May we find that courage, the courage that comes from knowing you, that seeing you in such a way that we cannot help but trust you because we see your majesty, your glory, your power, your sovereignty as you have revealed yourself in your word, Lord. It is inexhaustible. We will never see all there is to see of you. We will never know all there is to know about you. So may we keep looking, may we keep searching, may we keep digging in your word. In your word, may we see Christ our Savior. May we see his power at work among those who believe. May we take courage, whatever the mocker says, whatever he does. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.